Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and Web3 investor. We continue our focus on the entrepreneurial journey of founders in the crypto trading sphere. These are exceptional entrepreneurs willing to share their own story and journey prior to starting their venture. Tell us how their business got started and how their initial success was achieved. Much has been said about what it takes to succeed as a crypto trader. Some argue OGs, as early pioneers are referred to, are better equipped to understand this asset class. In some instances, it would seem that seasoned finance professionals, having previously navigated challenging market conditions, would be better suited. What became evident, however, throughout last year was a pervasive disregard for risk management and hedging within many trading organizations and crypto holders. Many market participants had become accustomed to a rising market and complacent in their assessment of the risk. As a result, well-known incumbents struggled or outright failed, and the crypto landscape looks very different now. What technological or marketing edge some firms possessed, they lacked in trading sophistication. But 2022 also saw the emergence of new entrants, bringing much-needed expertise in areas of complex trading and hedging. Among them is Orbit Markets. Based in Singapore, Orbit develops and provides liquidity in crypto derivatives, exotic options, and structured products to meet the growing demand for more sophisticated investing and hedging solutions in digital assets. Orbit is backed by prominent crypto investors such as Brevin Howard, Matrixport, Newform Capital, and others. In its short trading history since May 2022, the company has already onboarded over 60 institutions as clients, launched 10 different structured products, and facilitated transactions worth over $250 million in notional value. I am very pleased to have as my guest, Caroline Moll, co-founder at Orbit Markets. Previously, Caroline was a managing director at Deutsche Bank, most recently serving as the co-head of Foreign Exchange for Asia Pacific, with responsibility for currencies and precious metals trading and structuring. Caroline boasts several decades of experience developing and managing structured products and exotic options since 2005. She holds a degree in statistics from NCAA Paris and a master's in economics and finance from the London School of Economics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So my, uh, my background, I, I'm from France originally. I grew up in the countryside, really small village in the south near, near Toulouse. Yeah. And um, then I, uh, I studied in France. I did my, uh, my undergrad in Paris in statistics. And then I, I moved to London for a year to do my master's. And then I stayed uh, in London and in Singapore. When you were growing up, do you think there was anything that set the stage for the type of work that you like doing? I mean, were there initial passions and interests growing up when you were in, in high school, for example, that you develop a taste for, you know, more scientifically inclined disciplines? Or what were you like as a, an individual growing up that, that you think makes you a good fit for, for what you do these days? Yeah, I guess, you know, when I was in school, I liked, uh, I liked math. Um, I like reading books as well and other things. I like watching sports, you know. But I, I guess the math part was the part that set me uh, on the path, the professional path I went to. I, I graduated in statistics and then at the time when I graduated, it was really the time when a lot of uh, investment banks were hiring engineers with that kind of background, especially in France. So that's kind of how I landed up um, in, in trading, in derivatives trading. I started at BNP Paribas, you know, there was a lot of people with my type of background. So I guess that that, that math interest kind of, um, yeah, set me on that path. Isn't it interesting? I wanted to get your opinion also on the fact that, you know, in thinking as to when you started your, your career, most talented engineers, especially uh, and I'm from France as well, so I, I, I sort of know the landscape a little bit, went to finance. And London was a great hub, attracted a lot of young, brilliant, math-oriented talent. But isn't it interesting to think that if you take a decade later, a lot of these engineers are probably going in, in, into tech now, uh, more so than finance. Why did you gravitate more so towards finance than you did towards, let's say, going in engineering or, or technology at the time? Uh, yeah, you're right. I think at the moment people are more interested in tech. Look, I think these are cycles of what is uh, popular at the time. I, I had no particular interest in finance before like my, my last few years at university. It was just the kind of things that other people did uh, in, in my batch. Uh, and I went with the flow. I didn't really have any you know, very strong uh, inclination towards this or another thing. And, and maybe if I graduated now, I would go towards tech. Um, I think these are just, uh, yeah, um, different interests or different 
fashions during the cycles. So you get BNP Paribas, and do you go through a rotation program? Was it something where you were immediately directed to a, a given desk? How did you end up in derivatives trading, especially exotics derivatives trading? What was that progression there in terms of your initial training? Uh, so actually, it was complete um, random luck. Um, you know, I, I started as a kind of part-time intern at BNP, and I just landed on the FX options desk um, just because the person who hired me uh, worked there. And, uh, and so I, I just stayed there almost for my entire career. I stayed in FX options, uh, although at different banks. So um, I didn't do any rotation. I just, uh, at the time, a lot of banks were doing rotations, but, but BNP wasn't. Um, and then I guess as part of the you know, overall options business, I was more inclined towards the, the more technical and quantitative uh, side. So, I, you know, over time, I gravitated towards those um, products and, and trading books. But I've done all sorts of options in my career. I, I would imagine things came naturally, given sort of your natural inclination for, for numbers and, you know, sort of a structured mindset. You know, was there anything that you felt was difficult at the time? I mean, you know, I think those of us who've gone through rotational programs or uh, who sat on a desk, you know, we can follow different progressions. Some, for some people, it comes really easily. For some people, it's an apprenticeship. Did it come really easy to you? Was it just an, a natural ability to, to master the tasks on the desk? I think everyone has different strengths and different things that they find difficult. Um, you know, I, I probably found the technical side uh, re reasonably easy. Uh, and, and that was also my background from my studies. But then, you know, other things like you have to talk to salespeople and you have to talk to clients and you have to think about like the wider business. And uh, that's more something that I had to learn rather than something that came naturally. And I think everyone who starts on these desks, they have different strengths and background. This rotation process, I guess, they are made to, to find a good fit for each person. For me, I was just lucky that I kind of started on a good on the desk that was a good fit for me. I think it's probably a credit to the, the people who hired you that that they they knew where the fit was and and so that made it relatively seamless. You know, FX and foreign exchange um, is a lot of fun. I think if if especially if you do like numbers and you know it's it's a it's a very rich market for for listeners who don't necessarily know this. You know, maybe give a little bit of an idea of what that entails working on an exotics derivatives foreign exchange training desk. What the day to day on a desk was. You know, when you were getting started what types of things you did sure yeah yeah as a trader in a in investment bank uh, on a on a trading desk basically your job is to is to price customer requests uh, so counterparties come and they want prices on different products uh, and and the job is to price them and then manage the risk when when those products are traded so in a bank it's very different from my situation now, but in a bank, you, you have all the systems already there. They've been built for you. You start as a junior, then you have senior traders who, who teach you uh, or train you how you should think about the risk. So that, that's really important. Like the, the, you have the models and, and the systems to make the prices, but then the important thing is how you're going to hedge them, how you're going to manage the risk. And so usually you have maybe two, three years where you're not actually managing the risk yourself. You're working for a more senior trader um, and you, you observe how they think about things, what they do and you help them out. And, and then after some, uh, you know, for some people, maybe it's one year, sometimes it's longer, but after a while you're judged ready to, to manage the risk yourself and make your own trading decisions. And then it becomes, um, yeah, a little bit more, uh, responsibilities you're taking um that you really need to to make the right decisions and um you know when to hedge manage the trade-off between uh, minimizing the risk but also uh, maintaining business with your clients I, I guess the question for you know for me and and certainly for listeners uh were you in a seat where you actually had risk management responsibilities in 2008 during the great financial crisis and the years that followed, I remember, you know, I was uh, working at Deutsche Bank after the great financial crisis and equity derivatives. 
And you had sort of these waves of European crises that were sort of the aftershock of the great financial crisis. And these were very turbulent times in across asset classes. Were you in a position where you already had significant risk management responsibilities at the time? Yeah, yeah. So actually, um, I started managing like my own book as a trader um, in, uh, in mid-2007, roughly, uh, when I was working at Lehman Brothers. And uh, that, that, there was actually a little bit of a crisis in the, in the summer of 2007. It was the precursor to the bigger one a year later. And that was the first time that I was managing significant risk um, on my own. And that was definitely a, a big learning experience. You learn a lot doing that. Um, then in the main crisis in 2008, um, at that time, I had moved to Deutsche Bank. So I was in Singapore. I was managing the emerging currency um, book, options book. Um, yeah, that was also interesting. I had the experience from the previous year, so I felt uh, a lot more confident, um, I guess, in, in being able to manage extreme volatility and make decisions quickly and, and efficiently. Um, the, the European crisis, yeah, for sure. I guess for me, because I was in Singapore, it wasn't such a big event um you know we, we had like this um 24 uh, 24 hour shift where we moved the books to london and to new york and these events tended to happen or be managed more by the london traders so probably not so big for me i guess the the main like highly volatile events that i remember managing risk directly on was uh 2007 2008 I mean, I guess the reason why I'm emphasizing this is I do believe that, you know, people with your background and your expertise ultimately are probably better suited over a long period of time. You know, it's a, it's a game of pattern recognition and your ability to navigate and have the right reflexes. And also as you grow more senior and you hire other people to work for you, you're able to, you said when you started, you shadowed senior traders. Similarly, I'm assuming over time, you've had more junior traders shadow you and learn from you. Can you, I know it's, this would take a whole discussion, but what are the top things that stand out in terms of how do you manage as, as someone who's responsible, as you said, for pricing risk and then managing the positions that are a result of trading with the counterparty um, and knowing that that counterparty is either trying to hedge or they're trying to take a speculative view, which means they may actually have a model or an insight that you don't have, right? How do you manage that in a period of high volatility and turmoil? What are the top things that you look for? Yeah, I think when the, when the market is extremely volatile and illiquid, there's a, you really need to think about the more extreme risks, the, the things that you don't think about in normal times. Um, you know, so things like uh, obviously the counterparty default risk, um, settlement risk, uh, you know, in, in FX and in traditional finance, settlement is two business days. That, that can be a very long time. Um, thankfully, in crypto, it's faster. But, but all of these things, the liquidity of the market is very important. Like maybe a certain size was not a big deal in normal times, but now it can really kill you. So you need to consider all these scenarios. And when you do it for the first time, you don't really have time to think through everything from scratch. You either need to have some advice from more senior people who have lived through it or, or you know, or to have lived through it yourself. So you can think through the scenarios and have the conclusions already sort of ready or semi-ready. Um, Otherwise, you're going to forget something or miss something. And that's where experience is really helpful, I think. It's interesting because you keep making reference to sort of this apprenticeship side of the business and respect and humbleness towards sort of your elders, the seniors who've actually, you know, traveled that path before. You know, fast forwarding, you spend, you know, a relatively stable and, and successful career. You ended up, you know, running quite a significant business uh, in Singapore that extended beyond foreign exchange. What was that progression like? Was it just sort of incrementally building your own reputation internally and acquiring more responsibility? And, you know, I'm assuming also making PL on a regular basis. Is that sort of the progression that led you to taking on more responsibilities and getting promoted over time? 
Yeah, I think it was uh, it was relatively incremental. Um, you know, to start with, I was a junior trader. Then when I moved to Deutsche in Singapore, I'm kind of a, a regular trader, I guess. Uh, and then I'm managing different books. Then there's a there was a transition to I can't really say a manager, but you know where you have a slightly wider role that you're training juniors and you're expected to meet more clients and have more of an impact on the overall business. So that that transition is, uh, I guess, a bit difficult for most traders uh, because the, it, it's quite difficult to manage your your day to day trading job as well as thinking of all the other things going on uh, around the business. Um, but then once I was through that, then uh, I guess it was quite uh, incremental as well again. Uh, so I ran a small team doing the emerging FX options, then FX options, uh, and then uh, the wider business with like precious metals and structuring. So yeah, it, it's a progression. There's always some, you know, some some things that you have to get through. Um, that you're not used to doing, and then suddenly you need to learn doing them, and and then after a while they become natural. No, it makes sense. It makes total sense. So, we we get to the topic here is is to talk about orbit and and how you got started. So it sounds like you know we just went through a a, a strong background and a natural progression that really tees you up for the ability to do what you're doing today. It was with part of a a founding team as a senior leader going on your own with your partners and starting a new business that probably encompasses all the things that you learn along the way, starting with the technicals, how to price and manage risk, to growing as a more senior trader, to navigating uh, different stages and different market regimes, and then learning to, to manage businesses. So how does it come together? When does the initial idea come together to start a derivatives business in crypto? So actually, the idea came from uh, one of my co-founders, Jimmy. He's, uh, he's the one who had the, uh, the idea of, of setting up a, a company in crypto. He had followed the industry, uh, you know, closer than, closer than me, certainly. And he had contacts and, and friends in the industry, and he was interested. So he thought um, there was an opportunity there to, uh, to, to build a business. So we talked about it. Uh, he convinced me, I guess. And then we talked to, the, to TJ, who's our, our third co-founder. Um, you know, the, the three of us, basically, we used to all work together at Deutsche Bank. Um, we were all in the FX options team. TJ, he left uh, many years ago. He went to, to study, to do his PhD in computer science, worked in tech. So we hadn't worked with him for a while, but he's the, he's the only one who's got professional technology experience, which obviously we, we need. And, and we used to like working with him back at Deutsche. Um, while Jimmy and I, we worked together at Deutsche for 10 years, literally in the same team, you know, sitting next to each other. Um, so. We have a really similar background and, and skill set, uh, but yeah, so we're very used to working together and, and discussing things. So we we talked about what exactly you know what should be the business. We looked around. Um, we talked to a lot of people in crypto just to make sure we understand the the ecosystem. Uh, and actually, maybe for a bit of background for for listeners who may not be so familiar. Um, you know, in TradFi, when you have um, you have different asset classes like FX, equity, commodity, etc., and then within each asset class, you have different products. Like starting with the simple products like spot, then futures, then options, and then the more exotics and structured products. And each of these is a big layer in an investment bank for every asset class. But then, as we learned more about crypto, we realized. The, the last layer, actually, the exotics and structure, it didn't exist. No one was doing it, even though the, the vanilla options was actually very liquid, uh, quite comparable to, to TradFi uh, type liquidity. So we thought there's an opportunity there, like there's a gap that no one has taken yet. Um, and yeah, so we just, uh, you know, we all obviously had the expertise because that, that was what, uh, what we had worked on for many years. In FX, and we felt we could replicate this in in crypto. 
Um, so that was the, the original thesis that we could, uh, you know, replicate the effects of exotics and structured products into crypto. It makes a lot of sense. And one would say a, a few things. One is that with the growth of the asset class, you now had larger balance sheets and presumably the needs for risk management as well as monetization of those balance sheets through the use of more sophisticated products was probably becoming more prevalent. And by the way, just for from a timing perspective, when do these conversations take place? When does your co-founder have this conversation initially to convince you to do this? What what year is that? That's like the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. Yeah. Understood. So so we're really there at peak market cap and and I think I think there's a valid reason there to look at it and say, okay, we've got a purpose. We feel like there's a need we're going we're, we're gonna to solve here. And again, for listeners, when people talk about exotics and structured products, you know, you can look at it very speculatively. But, and one of the things I want to dive into in this conversation, hopefully, is talk about some of the more practical products that help other businesses really solve real problems beyond just taking a view. Right. And we'll get to that. When someone comes up with a business thesis, something that oftentimes gets lost, I, I see a lot of venture decks that uh, are really more emphasizing the technology and the product, but not really thinking about how big this market gets. Right. When you thought about the market size, what made this an attractive business to go after? Because if you look at what's traded on exchanges, in Bitcoin, we have about, on, on the listed side, we have about 10 to 20 billion. A month. Uh, Ethereum, we have probably around 10 to $15 billion a month, right? And in, in notional traded. If one just does a quick back of the envelope annualize on this listed trading and assuming what are actually pretty generous sort of capture metrics, that means that for each currency, you have a wallet that's around, and this is just my back of the envelope, 100 to $200 million a year in, in revenue, right? And this is listed. So when you think about setting up a business, uh, first of all, are these assumptions sort of the right way to look at it? They may be completely wrong. And then secondly, what are the types of growth assumptions that you bake into your business model? Are you thinking you want to take a, a big share of that wallet or you think the overall wallet is going to grow over time? Um, I, I guess there are different ways to to think about it. Um, one One thing we were we initially thought about and we think is still valid is that um, though, you know, in TradFi, in all asset classes, um, exotics and structured products uh, revenue is comparable to vanilla options and, uh, and is also, um, you know, maybe half of the or a third of the linear products type business. Um, so these... Because this is quite consistent uh, across different banks, different asset class, different geographies, etc. Of course, there are differences, but uh, you know, broadly, this market exists uh, in, in very different forms, uh, a bit everywhere. So we feel we felt there's every reason to think that it can be replicated in crypto. Um, now it it didn't exist yet, and so. When we pitched the idea to investors, some of them, especially crypto native who had no TradFi background, they just told us there is no demand for these products. Um, you know, so no one in crypto cares about them. It's a TradFi thing, not a crypto thing. Uh, but we felt, well, no one, no one is offering them yet. So how, how could they be trading them? You know, no one is going to demand a product that doesn't exist. So we, we definitely felt like there was a at least in relation or, you know, in comparison to vanilla options market or perp market, uh, there should be a material business there that, that didn't exist yet. Um, then, of course, it depends how big is that uh, perp market, how big is the underlying vanilla options market. Um, I think we are still seeing the options market grow at the moment or, or stable despite the bear market. Um, and as a proportion of the overall crypto market, we are still seeing growth in options. So that's definitely a sign that, you know, that derivatives, options, non-linear market was underdeveloped. Um, 
I, I mean, it's hard to give exact numbers. Uh, I think your your numbers were quite quite well researched. I won't <laughs> I won't argue with them. Um, yeah, I, I guess we just thought you know if there's if there is a crypto trading market and there is a liquid vanilla options market, then there is uh, an exotics market as well. It just needs to be built. I'm glad we're we're talking through this. Like I said, I think uh, and again for listeners, one of the things that I think has gotten lost in translation over the last few years is an overemphasis on the technology, the product, but not really thinking about, well, if I do build this capability, what kind of growth and what kind of market can I expect to tap into? And here, I think you've got at least a, a good solid set of assumptions, also taking an existing world that hopefully can be replicated. Obviously, one of the main assumptions, and I'm assuming there's an inherent conviction on the part of you and your co-founders that this is here to stay, right? Um, and it's 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 a bet that you know these assets that or these underlyings that you're trading are are here to stay, and there's no existential threat. Otherwise, the point would be moot. It's very interesting that you say that you pitched crypto native investors, and they actually turned down the opportunity. Just for context of you know what capital did you start with, and how did you go about pitching the project? What time were you in the market fundraising? I guess 2022, early 2022 was the the period. Yeah, that's right. It was actually a good time to to be fundraising as beginning of 2022. Um, look, I mean, we we pitched to investors. Obviously, not everyone is going to say yes. Uh, we were actually really lucky. I feel we got some really good investors. Uh, we raised um, 4.6 million at the beginning of the year. Some of our investors are uh, Matrix Board, Brevin Howard, um, New Form Cap. Um, so, um, you know, Maven 11 as well. So, we were really lucky. I actually enjoyed the the fundraising process. I think a lot of founders don't like it, but I thought it was very helpful because you you get a lot of free advice. You know, you talk to a lot of different investors who have different views and they see a lot of projects. Uh, I mean, they have a very different perspective from mine. And some people say yes, some people say no, but at every meeting you learn something. So uh, I actually thought it was uh, it was very helpful for us, especially because we were new to to crypto. For us to talk to so many crypto native, um, it, it was very useful. I'm assuming you've never raised money for for a startup, right? Before this, no, yeah, first time. Yeah, I'm assuming your co-founders didn't either. So, like, how do you guys get going? Where to start? Who to talk to? Who to approach? What was your process by which you obviously you came up with an idea, you packaged it. Uh, you justified it. You were ready to explain it to people. But how do you go from this to actually, I don't know, picking up the phone, sending emails? Like, who do you talk to? Who do you reach out to? Yeah, I guess we had contacts. Um, you know, we had we knew people that maybe we had worked with in the past um, or we knew them as clients in the past and they had moved to crypto. Um, and so these people introduced us to others. Then, you know, I mean, frankly, the first few pitching meetings were disasters. Like the, the first time you do this in your life, it's just going to be good. But, uh, but you get better at it quickly as you do more. Uh, and every time you pitch to someone, sometimes they say no, but they'll, they'll think of someone else who might like the idea. So they'll introduce us to some more. Um, so we had a lot of meetings. Um, and yeah, I think people just kind of uh, introduce as we go. So we didn't start with a lot of contacts, maybe five people or eight people that we knew, but then ended up meeting a ton of people, obviously. You know, they say that when you fundraise, it's better to go through the hardest meetings first, the, the meetings that are not necessarily going to be so friendly, or also taking into account that you're not yet well acquainted with the fundraising process, because it actually prepares you better for the conversations where a you'll have favorable or or friendlier investors and it trains you from the get-go otherwise you might have blind spots or you might get complacent was that your experience as well yeah i don't know if you want to start with the hardest that, that might be a bit discouraging <laughs> but um yeah look it's definitely a process and one thing to remember like if anyone is trying to fundraise at the moment and struggling People say no, it's not personal. Like they have, they are seeing a lot of projects. They're just gonna have to pick a few, 
um, maybe it's not something they know about. It, it doesn't mean the idea is not good or, you know, most people are helpful. It just kind of doesn't work for them at, at this time. So um, we were always, uh, you know, taking all feedback very constructively and, uh, and trying to learn from everyone we talk to. You mentioned the crypto natives. What were the other objections that people gave you when saying, no, we're not interested? I think that was the the one that we heard most often. Um, you know, people who just aren't familiar with the products and who haven't heard of them from TradFi and and just thinking like if if no one is asking for this, then you know how how are you gonna sell it? Um, and I they were also saying, well, it's not um these these products don't don't really work for retail, which is true. This is not a retail facing product. Uh, where you know our business has always been like institution uh, wholesale type business. So we had a plan, but not not everybody was familiar with you know what we were thinking about. So it's normal for for some of them um, not not to be uh, optimistic, I guess, about the plan. And then probably we also, you know, we also made many mistakes in answering questions. Like we get a question that's perfectly fair and the the answer that comes to mind right in the meeting doesn't make any sense. And then they say, no, <laughs> they're quite right. But then when the question again comes, we, you know, we have thought about it and we have the right answer. So these things take time. It's a process. Absolutely. Well, thanks for this. I think it's very helpful to your point. I think you alluded, you know, people are probably raising money right now and, it's actually a lot harder. Animal spirits are a thing. The fundraising market is, for all intents and purposes, pretty dire right now and, and almost shut down. So it's important to know that. And you know, this advice is, is very helpful. So building human capital, obviously, it always starts with the team. Sounds like you had a great team to begin with, a team that's worked together for many years, non-overlapping skills. You talk about the fact that you uh, have a co-founder who's highly technical. That balances out you know, also the fact that two of you had very, very strong sort of market practitioner background. But although your technical co-founder also had been on a trading desk, so presumably also had a very, very strong understanding of uh, sort of the business itself, how did you build the team beyond that? Uh, what was your approach? Yeah, I think we got we got really lucky with that. Um, you know, we, when we started this this business, actually, a few people that we had worked with um, back at Deutsche Bank contacted us, uh, was interested to join. So we were, we essentially only hired people we already knew. Um, many of them from Deutsche, others that one of us had had uh, studied with. Um, so. We didn't have to, you know, it's very hard to hire um, on an interview basis. Like I, I know that from a long time doing it at Deutsche Bank, like just sorting through CVs and, and interviewing people for an hour and hoping it works out. That, that's very, it's a very difficult game. So to be able to hire people that we already knew, that was really good. And, and it's also much easier for us to build products you know, when we already know each other, like there there has been no period where we need to get used to working with each other because we all already knew each other. So I think for that, we really got very lucky. That sounds like it. I mean, the job market was probably at its tightest when you started building the business. But it's it seems to me that your track record professionally over time really prepared you for hiring. There's something to be said also. There's been an emphasis on... I'd say less experienced founders who have great ideas and potentially a lot of energy and, and talent, but don't necessarily have, you can't build a network over time. You might be the most gregarious, connected person in the world. It's very hard to have a network of the same scale and depth when you are starting your career, especially if you go straight into the startup um, and I think the entrepreneurial route has been touted as this sort of, you know, golden path for a lot of less experienced professionals. But what gets lost is when you've spent a decade, a decade and a half, two decades, what you don't necessarily have as much in terms of energy, and it certainly doesn't apply to you because I know you're always working at any hour, um, <laughs> given the asset class, 
But something to be said about the power of the network that you acquire over time. And it's not just outside your organization. It's also within an organization, especially if you worked at large places. You acquire reputation. If people like working with you, they'll remember. Uh, if people like you, they'll remember. If you respect their talent, you'll remember. And there's something to be said about how that helps you get started in a business as opposed to, hey, I'm two, three years out of college. I have this brilliant idea and now I have to go find people to help me build it. And I see in some, some of the less experienced founding teams that might have great ideas and actually individually be tremendous contributors, but they struggle in attracting talent because talent is also very hard to source unless there's a little bit of a trust and a track record. So in terms of the, the, the role splits within the team, you know, there's one that's obvious, there's a technical role, but amongst the other two, one of them being yourself, how do you split your roles? Um, I guess, I mean, we don't have very well-defined splits. Um, I guess because we're used to, to working together for a long time, um, we don't necessarily feel the need to, uh, you know, define things very clearly. But um, we've been, you know, we kind of adjust as things uh, <laughs> come up um, based on our skill set, although it's pretty close, but, you know, we have different backgrounds. Um, so with different clients, we might, each of us might do better. Um, uh, like Jimmy has been looking at all the, the legal documents, for example. Um, I've been looking at the, you know, the financials and accounting side. It's not, it's not really uh, of any particular you know, strong rationale that we thought about and decided. They just kind of uh, happened this way. Um, we're, mm, I'm not sure actually. I mean, it's a good question, but um, I I feel it works quite well because because we are used to working with each other. Um, but then if you if you put three co-founders who don't who don't have that history, then you would need to be much more precise about what everyone is doing. It sounds like you have a very symbiotic relationship that develop over time. So it sounds like it's not even a question. You kind of you all know sort of empirically where everyone and 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 sort of naturally gravitate towards certain th activities that are complementary. So that's great. Again, it's it's just you know whether call it luck or just the right alignment. Again, I'm assuming your investors also recognized that when they when they saw it. Moving on to the actual business itself, who are your main target customers and counterparties? You tout that in a very short period of time you've actually onboarded what is a non-trivial number of counterparties, I think over 60, which in the institutional world is is, is pretty formidable. Who are these these target counterparties and customers? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're essentially trading with um, crypto-native institutions, I would call it. Um, you know, we talk to a few TradFi institutions, but that's not the main um, client base at the moment. So mainly we're talking about crypto platforms, crypto hedge funds, um, you know, crypto focused family offices, um, all, all those sorts of crypto focused firms that have a need for trading solutions. That might be hedging solutions because they have exposure or they have their own client who wants to trade, that sort of thing. Or it might be uh, in the case of hedge fund or family offices, they're actually looking for yield. So they have a view that they are trying to monetize and and they look for more sophisticated products than, than are available on the listed exchanges. Um, so they, they talk to us about that sort of thing. Uh, and, and then I guess one, one last uh, vertical is the, the DeFi-related um, business. So we've been, we've been quite interested in the DeFi world from the start. It, it wasn't really our, our background, but we think there's a lot of innovation happening there and we've been learning and trying to engage with a lot of different protocols so we offer a few different DeFi related solutions like impairment loss hedging or um, staking yield swaps um, so for that we sometimes engage with like DeFi based uh, protocols who want to offer these products to their own users um, and uh, yeah but I guess even in this case you would call it crypto native 
your approach to identifying monetization opportunities, there are a few products that come to mind that you've sort of touted and put forth. And I wanted to understand, were these sort of, let's try this and see if it works? Uh, were these a response to specific demands in conversations you had with clients? So uh, there's really three that come to mind where I think you've stood out as an innovator. One you mentioned is the fixed versus floating staking yield swap structure. You also, I think, paved the way for more sophisticated hedging using forwards, especially a target redemption forward, which is something that is widely used in TradFi, uh, but had yet to see the, the day in crypto, and you actually paved the way for that. You talked about the impermanent loss protection product. Are these three sort of, hey, uh, let's go out and pitch this and see if it works, or people came to you or in a conversation, someone said, well, we really need that. Can you price that? Would that be possible? How did that come about? I guess for, for all the TradFi type products, um, you know, whether that's all the barrier options or the structured forwards like the TAFs and things like that, typically it's a reverse inquiry. So it's people who came from TradFi and are now working for a crypto firm and they know about this product, they know how it's used and why it's used in TradFi. And so they ask around, you know, is this possible in crypto? And someone tells them, yeah, these guys at Orbit Markets can do it. So, so they call us. Um, so that that's kind of in general that's the story for uh, for the TradFi type product, for the DeFi uh, focused like impermanent loss or staking yield. You actually it's more like we are reading and we're just learning about what's happening in DeFi, and then we think, oh, you know what, that's interesting. Like um, so, for impermanent loss, which was the first one, we we didn't even think it would be a product initially. We were just looking at it and thinking, hey, that's just like an exotic option. Um, so we, we put out an article in Medium explaining that you can price it just like an exotic option. And then people started contacting us, asking, like, can they actually do this with us? Can they hedge it this way? Uh, so we, we realized, you know, there is a product there. Um, so, yeah, I think the DeFi has been more um, driven by us and our own interest. And the, the TradFi is pure replication by, by people who already know this. It's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of imagine those of us who are quant nerds, you know, sitting in the room saying, okay, how would we price this and then solve for it? And then, then it turns to your point, it turns into a solution. I'm sure it was a lot of fun for you guys because I know, you know, I remember from, from being on a desk, like an exotics desk, there's just a, a lot of ongoing problem solving, right? And that's part of the, the appeal in trying to, you know, crack the code and come up with a solution. Let's talk about, you know, a product like a, you know, a forward uh, hedge. Who is the typical audience for this? And my next question would be, as you manage the risk, is there enough of a market that you could go out and replicate the risk to hedge? And how much of the risk do you actually keep? And how difficult is it in this new world versus the world that you were in before? Let's say if you were going to help, let's say, a Bitcoin miner through a TARF structure, like a, a forward hedge over a certain period of time to help them protect their production of Bitcoin, how would you go about and hedge that in the market uh, in order to protect yourself once you've issued that structure? Yeah, so I think um, compared to what... Uh, I was used to in, in FX. Um, actually, crypto is most similar to precious metals, I think, um, rather than uh, currencies. You, there's a, a lot um, in terms of market structure, how, what people are trying to achieve with hedging and speculation and you know the, the listed versus OTC market. There's a lot that feels just like precious metals or, or possibly other commodities, mm -hmm. though I'm less of an expert. Um, and in particular, with the product you're mentioning about, you know, miners looking to hedge, I mean, that's also a very popular way to hedge, um, you know, gold exposure for gold miners. Um, so, yeah, when, when we, if, a, if a client comes to us and, uh, and they want to hedge their, their crypto production and we, we do that structure with, us, with them, then we need to go and, and hedge it. I would say at the moment, um, certainly in BTC and ETH, um, the liquidity is still uh, there and, and perfectly adequate. Um, now, of course, we are not doing the same type of sizes that we were doing, you know, in, in FX, in gold or in euro dollar. Uh, but so 
the liquidity is lower than in TradFi, but also the, the size you need for those products is also lower. So that's, um, I think that's like, quite fine in terms of day one hedging, where you try to put on your, your Delta hedge, your Vol hedge, some kind of, uh, you know, put spread, call spread, etc. All of that has not been um, particularly difficult. I, I guess the, the two points, um, one, one thing that we were maybe very concerned about when we started was uh, the kind of slippage that we might have um, as as markets gap. You know, um, you had some experience, right, with exotics trading, like you need to keep rebalancing your hedges. Yes. Um, and in, in FX, it's not something that you have to worry too much about because there's always an FX option market somewhere out there. But uh, that, that is yet to be seen, you know, in crypto, we are not that familiar. So we weren't that confident that it was going to be easy to, um, for example, stop out uh, a perp hedge if we need to, what's going to be the slippage that we see. We've actually been um, reasonably like positively surprised, uh, even through very big market events, the liquidity in, uh, at least in the underlying perp market has remain very solid, I would say, in, in BTC and ETH. So that hasn't caused us any issue. Um, the other good thing, I would say, about uh, crypto exotics or products is that they tend to be very short dated. Um, in TradFi, whether it's in FX or in equity, people will easily do you know, three-year, five-year products. I mean, in some cases, they do 30-year even. So in crypto, everyone is doing one month, three months, uh, at most one year. So it's a lot easier to manage that. Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, if you're wrong, you find out very quickly that, that you were wrong. Um, so that, I think that makes it safer. Um, the fact that it's much, much shorter dated. Overall, we haven't found that the... Uh, kind of the hedging or the risk management principles are, are very different. Uh, that's for BTC and ETH. When you talk about altcoins, that's that's a very different story. Um, there is very little liquidity, if any, in the option market, and even the underlying perp liquidity or spot liquidity is very unreliable. So that's that's not comparable to, to what I'm used to in TradFi, I would say. Would you say it's more comparable to some emerging market currency pairs or crosses um, in terms of its behavior, or it's even worse on the altcoin side? Yeah, not really. Um, um, maybe to some of the frontier currency, uh, which I, I don't have you know, that much experience with, or if you're thinking like rhodium, maybe, or some, something like that. But it's, <laughs> it's really not comparable to the standard types of things. It's, it's not, you know, Bitcoin and ETH are comparable to emergings, but, but not, uh, not the altcoins. From an options trading perspective, the fact that you're mostly dealing with the front end of the, the vol curve, the vol surface, probably brings in a slightly different risk management pattern than it would if you're trading longer dated volatilities. Would you say price discovery is sufficient, even in the front end of the vol surface, that um, you know you have a pretty good idea of where things trade, where you anticipate them to trade, as you think about the various types of risk that you're warehousing? Is there enough price discovery to help you model that beyond just trading around at the money? Uh, what about the the edges of the vol surface? Do you feel like there's enough price discovery there to help you model it out? Um, crypto is a bit funny. I guess it's a bit more like equity in that sense. Like it's it's very visible. You have you know derivative is is very liquid and it's very tight, uh, including out out of the money strike. So you can always like see the smile, but that the liquidity is not at all deep and and it moves very quickly. It, you know you can trade a very small amount and then it will move the market a lot. So it's um. I mean, you definitely can't say it's not observable. Like, it's for sure it's observable and very visible. Uh, it's just not that reliable. That makes sense. I mean, there's always sort of that trade-off between what you can see and what you can actually trade on. And if you actually traded, what is the, the depth of that liquidity yeah, point? Exactly. Um, you did allude to the fact that the, the capacity constraints are real and that is it fair to say that 
the business works well, but it's still on a much smaller scale, obviously, than what you were doing before, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not comparable in terms of the volumes being traded, of course, and in terms of you know the overall market cap of the crypto market versus uh, FX or equity. We're in a really, really brutal crypto winter and TradFi will just be a bear market for now, at least combination of macro and then endogenous issues, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on within the crypto market itself and some of the, the participants. My first question is, if you were to explain to listeners, as someone who's navigated multiple crises, what you think led to the re-rating this year of values and asset prices within the asset class? And then secondly is, how is that impacting your business versus the plan that you initially had? So I think what triggered it is, um, I mean, it's very simple. There was inflation and then the Fed started raising rates and that in every economic cycle, that is a bad thing for for risky assets. And um, crypto was one of the you know, riskiest asset there was, um, or the riskiest asset there was in, in the market. Um, and so it went down just like um, other risky assets. So I, I think crypto did not behave like in a particularly special way or innovative way or anything. You know, it was just a um, general economic cycle that was bad for, for an asset like this. I think for us, how did that impact our business? because we raised money before uh, so now now we can just look at the environment and and uh, and continue so I feel it was it's been good for us in in a few different ways uh, firstly people have lo- have learned that they can lose money and sometimes the price goes down so that means uh, they need to hedge so a lot of people, I think, in crypto, you know, crypto natives maybe didn't realize the need for, for hedging and risk management. Um, and so some of these, not all, but some of these will decide that options and other derivatives may be the best way to hedge uh, for their purpose. And that's good for our business. Uh, the other good thing was that a lot of the unsustainable uh, yield generation strategies have disappeared. Um, you know, there was this idea that you could just get 20% for no risk, then then why would you do an option or anything else like a derivative product if you can just get 20% for nothing? Um, but that wasn't possible as, as people have now learned. So a lot of, you know, crypto funds, uh, other crypto trading firms that are in the business of making money um, are looking at more traditional return generating strategies and that typically includes uh, options and, and exotic derivatives in TradFi and so we've had requests from that that kind of um, businesses. What I'm getting from this conversation is that you think it's a net positive over time, not necessarily right now, but there's going to be a gradual shift towards you know more reliable, more sustainable practices and the instruments that help investors and treasurers manage their risk and generate return beyond sort of those artificial sources of return. Now on the microstructure side, you know, we've seen large firms go under and we've seen a lot of leverage come out of the system. Are you seeing an impact in your ability? You talked about slippage and you said that you were pleasantly surprised even in tough market conditions. Is there any impact, however, even in perp liquidity across the option spectrum versus, let's say, when you got started? I know you don't have a whole lot of track record yet actively trading the asset class, but has there been a noticeable change at the microstructure level? I think, um, yeah, the, the depth of the market and, and the way it's a bit um, maybe jittery, or I don't know what's the right word, but it moves more than it should, uh, you know, on very small trades. So that really reflects a lack of underlying liquidity, which if you're just looking at the headline top of order book, you know, on screen, it looks totally fine. But in reality, behind, there's not that much. And I think that that reflects that there are simply less market participants. Um, some of them, well, some of them have gone under. And, and others have pulled back. 
either because they have you know different priorities, refocusing on their core business, which might be something else, or they have less capital available, or whatever, or maybe they don't want uh, risk to, the, to a particular exchange, etc. So a lot of different reasons people are, are focusing on the core that they want to do and not doing the rest, and that means there's a, there's less overall liquidity, I would say, even if it's not completely obvious if you just look at the the screen. I mean, that would be expected. Overall, just to wrap more of this practitioner part of the conversation, what do you think fundamentally you are getting compensated for and what your business generates value from? You're offering structures and solving for real needs, whether it's on the risk management side or are giving investors an opportunity to generate returns. But if you boil it down to, let's say, Econ 101, what type of risk are you getting compensated for and monetizing at the end of the day? Look, our, our job is to provide uh, liquidity in these products. Um, so we get compensated for, for providing liquidity and pricing this liquidity uh, correctly. Uh, and there is a very specific expertise in doing that. You know, both, um, I guess, technical or mathematical as well as market trading expertise. Um, and, and that that has a price. And a lot of firms um, in crypto, they need, you know, maybe they have market views or that they want to express, or maybe they need to hedge a particular exposure, but they don't necessarily have that um, expertise. Uh, and so it makes sense for them to... Uh, you know, offset, you know, pass on the, the risk or the exposure to another firm that has the expertise. Uh, and so our, our revenue comes from a bit of a spread in, in providing liquidity on this product. Yeah, it makes total sense. And if you have something that people don't have, you can monetize that. And there's a, a very pointed expertise that should allow you to maintain a sustainable edge in doing so, especially with what seems to be close to first mover advantage in this space. Now, let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is regulation. You know, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts, whether you care, do not care, how does it impact your, your business today and on a going forward basis? I know you're based in Singapore so you're you're obviously operating outside of US regulatory system but you are trading with counterparties globally so talk to me a little bit about how you and your team have thought about regulation today versus what might come of it in the coming years so for us it's been a, a new experience i guess operating in a in a in an unregulated or or less regulated environment um it has Definite drawbacks, I would say. Uh, I mean, the, the main one is that you have a lot less transparency uh, on your counterparties. Uh, you know, you, you have, we have to be dealing with private firms that are not regulated or regulated with, um, you know, in, in, not in the US, you know, in jurisdictions that maybe don't have regulators that are so hands-on as the US or the main financial centers. And that means that there's less transparency and less confidence in uh, in the counterparty risk that you're taking. And combined with you know the high-profile defaults uh, this year, well last year, and the overall bear market, that makes it very difficult. And essentially, you have a credit crunch, exactly like the credit crunch that happened in in 2008 in TradFi, except in in 2008 there was still a lot more transparency. And the central bank stepped in and gave everyone confidence. And the, the crypto world doesn't have that. And that means the process, I feel, um, of, of cleaning up is taking a lot longer because people just don't, they can't see what's in the balance sheet of everybody else. And there's no real way to trust or verify uh, what is happening at, at your counterparties. So I think that's the, the main drawback of, of not having regulations and i think i mean people are aware of that and regulators of course are aware of that as well um the the advantage i suppose is uh you know you can do things faster um of course when you work in a big bank there's a lot of internal controls and uh, and these have been built over years uh, on on regulatory uh, requirements or just because it was 
somehow there was a problem and some control was built. And uh, and when you build a startup from scratch, you don't have any of these controls. But I think like we know from experience that these things are useful. Uh, and so it's uh, as you build a small startup from scratch, like we've thought, we've been thinking a lot, you know, about where is the trade-off between building things quick, getting getting products out there, getting talking to clients, uh, but at the same time making sure that we have all the right controls um, and, and governance that we you know nothing goes wrong on our side, even though the regulatory environment is light. That's that's great to hear, and I think that is so important for the industry, and also so important for other entrepreneurs and founders in the space to hear. I always say, build as if, um, and it sounds to me like these mechanisms were so ingrained in your own experiences that yes, you would go about discussing some of the trade offs, but kept a lot of room for best practice. At the end of the day, a lot of internal policies and red tape are there for a reason. Oftentimes they go a little bit too far, sort of almost as an insurance premium against business risk. But a lot of those policies are sound. They're just how to run your business in a better way, right? And in other words, like, you know, we've seen some of the worst behaviors this year at some organizations that did not have this kind of DNA. And I think in the end, they probably had really good business franchises, but where it went wrong is they were poorly run. And, and that's sort of agnostic from regulation. I mean, regulation is there to make sure that everyone abides by certain rules and policies, but the best businesses out there are always very well self-managed. So I think you're making a very strong case towards that. As we wind down the conversation, obviously a lot has happened and we're probably getting closer to the one-year mark when you actually were able to get the funds to get started. And you're at this time last year, you're probably in, in the thrust of, going out and reaching reaching out to people and getting excited about getting this thing up and running. Do you feel good about where you are relative to what has happened when you track your progress and what you've worked on? Do you see the results that you wanted to see? Has it been fun and interesting? I think those are the two things that I would ask. Yeah, so I would say it's been super fun. Uh, you know, building building a business from scratch. The best thing about it, I would say, is that you have a lot of impact quickly. Um, Compared to having a job in a big organization and everything you do is very incremental, you're working on effectively small details. In a, in a startup, everything you do is, a, is very material to your business. So that's been really enjoyable. Obviously, working with uh, you know, people I, I knew and I liked and we worked together before to, to kind of build something together, that's all been really fun. Um, the, yeah, exactly. A year ago, actually, is uh, is the week that we incorporated the business, so that's <laughs> quite an anniversary. I Congratulations! Yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, look, it, it it didn't exactly, um, you know, we couldn't have planned for what happened. Uh, all these um, major failures, we didn't expect that. Uh, on the other hand, we definitely didn't expect either that. Num, you know, every number would keep going up and it would be forever easy to just raise money and, and spend it. Like we knew that would not last. So we've always been prepared and uh, trying to, you know, build a sustainable business, a profitable business, something that will, uh, that can be run for the long term. We think what's happened, of course, it's not all positive, but uh, we wish the market was was bigger and our clients make money. Um, but at the same time, we think there's a lot of positive here. Like I explained, um, the, the need for hedging products and, and more traditional yield generation strategies has been made clear. So we feel there's a, in the long term, there's definitely validated the, the thesis that we have and, and there's a, a business there. So we... We look to keep building, keep uh, growing partnership within the ecosystem, uh, maybe with other TradFi firms. There's a lot to be excited about, I think, both in, you know, uh, some projects are coming from the DeFi side, very new, building new innovation, like uh, new features on chain. At the same time, you see the big banks like uh, JP Morgan is building tokenization. I think at some point, the two worlds kind of 
get together, probably that, that's where we have uh, something really exciting. So we really want to, to make sure that uh, you know, we're working with both sides, we, uh, we bring in and, and we're collaborating with, uh, with these innovators in this space. That sounds like a, a great outlook. And you sound genuinely excited, despite, you know, it was probably a, a difficult year. You sound very poised and I'd say very composed in light of what has happened in the asset class itself. And I think it speaks to the fact that you and your, your co-founders, again, have, have seen a lot of these market cycles. You know what you're good at and you've executed on it. And I fully expect that this will continue. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to chat today. I know it's late in Singapore. Very thankful for any time you take away from your business to, to chat with me. I think this will be very valuable to listeners and a very unique story in a segment of, of the market that sometimes is not as well understood. But I think it speaks to the need for more seasoned, experienced professionals to step in into the space and bring, I think, much needed operational and risk management expertise to make the industry successful. So I want to thank you for your time today and wishing you all the best for the months to come. Thanks very much. Thanks for the opportunity. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor.